It was a grey day in the year 367. As the clouds billowed up ahead, an old man was walking down the stone steps to the underground area where he was heading, just outside the city walls of the ancient city of Rome. His name was Basil, and he was a bishop in one of the large church congregations in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. Three months ago, he had received an invitation to a gathering of church leaders in the capital, and today, finally, he would be joining them. He followed the path down the stone steps until he reached a stone door, knocked three times, and a glum doorman led him in. There were steps leading ever down into the dark. He was entering and kept walking down, and the walls were lined with tombs because these were the catacombs of Rome's where people had buried their dead, but also where the Christians had been meeting, um, secure from the persecution of those people trying to throw them into the Colosseum, fighting against wild beasts. The path was only illuminated by oil lamps on the floor. And Basil started hearing this noise besides the shuffling of his feet. It was a low rumble, like voices arguing. It reverberated around the vaults of the hallway that he was walking towards. The noise kept growing louder and louder until he reached a large stone hall underneath. There was candlelight dancing on the walls and the air smelled of mold, dust and corpses. On one side of this large hall there was a table set up. And on that table there were 27 parchments or books. Basil drew in a sharp breath. These were the holy scriptures he had dedicated his life to preaching and teaching. There was men arguing in that room, just like him, old men with beards and furrowed faces, and some of them crippled from the persecution they had endured. They were arguing with each other. And one particular guy had a pointy nose and, and a red scar on his cheek and, and uh, black eyes. Basil immediately recognized him. This was Francis, the Bishop of Rome, who claimed direct succession from Peter and therefore leadership over all the churches. He was arguing with another group of old men. He was saying, How dare ye question my authority? I am in direct line to Peter. And I say, I had a dream and these 27 books land out here. These are the ones we are to take as authority over the church. To that, the group of men answered, Who are you? How do you tell us what to do? You, you can't do that. In our church, we love reading the Gospel of Mary Magdalene because, you know, it's about a woman. We love reading that. You can't tell us that thing won't book, is not authority in our churches. The men kept arguing and, and talking to each other and they didn't notice a woman walking in on the other side of the room. She had crazy hair and crazy eyes and started shrieking. And suddenly the men noticed her, looked at her. How dare a woman enter our holy midst? The woman kept shrieking, A vision! A vision from the Lord Jesus Christ! I saw a library! A library burning! But oh, 27 books did not burn! These are the 27 books you are to take as authority in the churches! Hush came on the room and everyone was quiet. 
Surprisingly, Francis wasn't that surprised by the woman coming in. He stepped in and said, See, I told you so. These 27 books are the ones we are to take as authority in our churches. We're going to have a vote now. Everyone in favor, say aye. And one after the other, everyone started saying aye, 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 aye. And this is how the Bishop of Rome, by bribing a crazy woman, tricked all the other bishops into accepting the 27 books that are now our New Testament. <laughs> so this is kind of how a lot of people think the New Testament came together. You know, uh, this bunch of old dudes uh, meeting up in a creepy room somewhere downstairs, all looking like Santa Claus in their red robes and like bishops' heads. And, you know, this power-hungry Roman bishop saying, I want these, whatever else is out there, it doesn't matter. I want these, you guys have to take these. A lot of people think that the New Testament was put together from top down. Well, that story that I just told is actually complete rubbish. <laughs> Yes. So we've been talking about um, books of the New Testament over the last few weeks. And uh, today what we're going to do is actually take a broader approach uh, and look at the development of early Christianity from, so Jesus died probably in the year 30 until um, the fourth century, so the 300s. And um, I want to talk about not just what happened, but actually how that still impacts our lives today. Yeah. So the title of my message is this. Where to turn when the world is turbulent? Okay, so I'm going to tell you the solution of this question first. So the question is, how did the New Testament come to be? How do we have these 27 books today? The story I told was these bunch of guys deciding from top down what 27 books would be in the Bible. That is not actually what happened. The Bible or the New Testament developed from the bottom up which meant that by the year 200, 180, 200, most of what we consider the New Testament today was already accepted wildly in the churches. So basically telling a Christian around the year 200, so the letters of Paul are really authority, you should really listen to them. That's like telling a carpenter how to put together IKEA furniture. Yeah, so I was built a putting up together Ikea furniture the last two weeks. And, and there was this one moment where I was wrestling with the leg of a chair, like, come on, you need to go on, <laughs> Until I checked the plan again and duh, uh, I had to turn this piece and surprise, the thing, the leg went onto the chair, yeah. So, you know, telling a Christian, hey, you know, these, most of these books, these are authority, these are relevant for your life. That was like telling a carpenter how to put together Ikea furniture. Like, yeah, duh, of course they are. Like, why, why would you even mention that? Yeah. yeah. So the current times feel very turbulent. You know, the things we took or I took for granted, I can't take for granted anymore. And it's pretty similar to the situation of the early believers in the first four centuries. So there was two kinds of pressures these guys were facing. Pressure from without and pressure from within. So pressure from without was mainly persecution. 
um, and persecution. So we, it wasn't, persecution wasn't always all the time really like heavy. It wasn't like as soon as you hit the baptism pool, you couldn't exit the door without someone coming around with a club and trying to kill you. Not like that, but it was really centered in, in areas and at times. And by the year 249, it became more severe and more spread around the Roman Empire. And the reason why Christians were persecuted was not uh, because uh, of the content of the message. It was actually because in uh, the Roman Empire, religion and politics were inseparably connected. And that meant if you didn't venerate the deities that this, the Caesar or the emperor wanted to be venerated, uh, that meant you were actually uh, against the state. You were actually fighting against the peace around the state. And obviously the Christians didn't sacrifice to the Roman gods. They didn't uh, sacrifice to Caesar who let himself be venerated as a god. On top of that, they worshipped a crucified savior, which is like worshipping a gangster. That was weird. And they didn't fit into the social groups. Like they had, they, you know, they didn't, you know, the lower and the upper class mixed. Like that, that's just weird. And they kept growing, like they grew in number and all that just was super suspicious and um, made people jealous and that's why Christians were persecuted. Uh, and so from 349 it got more severe but by the year 311 the persecution stopped and eventually Christianity was accepted and later became the state religion in the fourth century. Yes, so that's the outside pressure that the Christians were facing. Now on the inside, there was actually more other things really severe going on in the churches. Um, one of them was so-called Gnosticism. Um, it comes from the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, which just means knowledge. So these guys um, were claiming they had a special knowledge on top of everything that was being taught in the church. So they would be like, ooh, we, we've got this revelations from heaven. We have these books that are really, ooh, you know, they're, they're a bit spooky. But um, we've got this special revelation about, you know, there's a bad God and there's a good God. And like, a bit weird stuff when you read that, that stuff. So what they did was they had, they accepted the normal scriptures, but they wrote their own stuff claiming to have a special revelation. And what was dangerous about them was that they remained within the churches. They didn't form their own communities, but they were kind of drawing people from the original message towards what they were saying. So second group um, was gathering around a guy called Marcion, who was a church leader in 142, 160 in uh, Rome. He was a really influential guy. And what he said was, uh, I don't like the Old Testament. And I don't like all the scriptures that we're using. We're going to just use the letters of Paul and the Gospel of Luke. Um, and there's this old the, old, the God of the Old Testament is a bad God. He's not the God of the New Testament, so we're not going to use that guy. So he took away from basically the scriptures that were widely accepted at the time. And this brought up a lot of turbulence in the church because they had to reflect on why, why do we actually need this? Why do we read these texts? Third group of people were the Montanists. And they said, oh, we have a prophecy. Jesus is coming back. Uh, so we need to, you know, live an abstinent life, you know, abstain from food and sex. By the way, I never know how these groups were gathered so many followers. Like, what's so attractive about that? Um, yeah. So these are the three groups of people that were really drawing believers and, and were creating their own communities, some of them. And this was endangering not just the message of the church, but the, the gathering of the church and their constitution. Yes. 
So there was three things how these guys actually faced these challenges. And I'm going to go through them um, succinctly. They all start with C. So the first one is canon. Second one is church leadership. And the third one is the our confession. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So um, let's start with the canon. Um, so the thing what they did to, to face these troubles within the church is they actually started aligning on what are the scriptures that we are accepting in our churches. Um, are we accepting the Old Testament? What are the books that we are reading in our congregations? And by that, they could say, okay, these Gnostic writings, these weird, funky writings, we're not accepting them because they aren't authority in our church. But how did these books actually come to be? So what happened is say the guys in Ephesus uh, where, where there was a church they had a letter and they sent this letter to say Colossae or Galatia, Galatia and said hey we would love to read your letter so uh, from an early stage on so the, the letters of Paul were written from the 50s on and these are the earliest writings of the New Testament and then the gospel starting from 70 around 70 with Mark and as soon as you had a letter you started copying it We sent it to the neighboring church. And that's how, at an early stage, this letter got distributed. But not only did single letters get um, spread around, but then they were collected into collections of letters. So the, the letters of Paul were put into one collection and Hebrews was included into this collection, uh, surprisingly because it's not by Paul. And also the Gospels were put together in a collection of four Gospels, Mark, uh, Matthew, Luke and John. And so by the year, yeah, 140, 160, 180, these books are accepted. Everyone knows about that. Four Gospels, Acts, Letters of Paul, 1 to 2 John, um, 1 Peter. And then there were some writings that were still disputed. There was still like dispute going on, like about Revelation, about James, Jude, and, and a few others. But the bulk of the New Testament by the year 180 was fixed and everyone knew about it. And so the bulk of what we believe, like the essential, the core things were set up and, and everyone knew about it. And there was no discussion about that, um, even though there was a wide range of writings around. Yes. And the reason why, say, they included, uh, uh, the, the early Gospels were included and not, say, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or there was a Gospel claiming the eternal virginity of Mary, which um, I don't really know how that works. But hey, um, the reason why these early Gospels were accepted is because they were early. So they were um, thought to go back to the Apostles and they actually referenced each other. So they used each other and that's why they said, oh, these are the ones that are authority for us. Yes. So um, let me ask you, what does the Bible have to do with your life and behavior? Yes. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 24 says, Your statutes are my delight, they're my counselors. I love, I love this verse because there's so much longing in that verse, you know, your, your, your statutes are my delight. I love your words. And you know, ultimately, the Bible is not about just knowing stuff, but it's about, it's a matter of love. And when I say, hey, what does the Bible have to do with your life and behavior? I'm really asking, what does Jesus have to do with your life and behavior? You know, and if, if I want to, if, if I love Jesus, I want to get to know him. I want to read the Bible. I want to live for him because he's changed my life and he's done everything for me. 
So let me ask you again. What does the Bible have to do with your life and behavior? What does Jesus have to do with your life and behavior? And that doesn't mean we take everything as literal and it's all, um, you know, it's, it's all literal. You know, we don't leave our brain outside the door. Uh, I hope, Debs, you can tell me if this is wrong, but uh, I'd hope there wasn't a box outside that said, please leave your brain here. Was there? No, yeah, no. See, so we all still got our brains. We still can engage with our brains with the Bible. But I'm asking you, are you actually brave enough to ask the questions that you have? Now, are you brave enough to find out about it? Or are you just letting it all simmer and, and wait until somebody tells you? So the second thing that the early Christianity turned to as the times were turbulent was church leadership. So um, basically, it, it's also called apostolic succession, which means... Um, I, if I was a bishop, I would be coming from another bishop. I was under another bishop, meaning this guy, um, I'm succeeding this guy. So I, I learned from them, I, I studied under them. And it all goes back basically to the times of the apostles, which meant that if, you know, I, I was a heretic and stood up, hey, I love, you know, I've got this special knowledge, follow me. They were like, uh, who are you and who are you following? Who, who was your leader? And so by that you could distinguish, okay, these people are actually not in line with the gospel message. So um, I think nowadays we have a problem with leadership. Uh, I'm German, I definitely do. Um, <laughs> but actually that is, it is good. It, it's not a bad thing to question people and question leadership as such like I said you know we're not switching off our brain but um, when I talk about the leadership of our church I'm mainly talking about Mark and Joyce but also the team that is around them and I can say from my own experience I've been around for 13 years now which just means I've seen a few things um, all these people love Jesus they love church and they're giving their very very best they love Jesus love the church and are giving their very best And there's a story that actually really greatly impacted me back in the days. So this was about 10 years ago. I was part of the platform team also that saw playing keys back in the corner. And uh, we had rehearsals at this basement garage thing uh, around Rosa Luxemburg Platz. Yeah, I see some people nodding. <laughs> so you walked down, there was these fancy cars parked there. You kept walking to the dark and there was this uh, door and you entered and there was our rehearsal space. Um, yeah, it smelled of car oil, sweaty men, um, and there was like rugs on the wall, just disgusting rugs and on the floor and everything. And we were rehearsing there, yeah. Yeah, really valuing people, hey. And, uh, so um, this one time, you know, back in the days, church was much smaller and the atmosphere was much rougher. And um, this one particular rehearsal, um, we were sitting around and Mark had actually joined us to um, speak to us and share with us. And I don't remember anything really that he was sharing. Um, what I do remember is at some stage while he was sharing, he got up and lay on the floor with like, his body outstretched like this and with his face like down, not like the way that I fall asleep on my belly, like, ah, but like with his face into this disgusting, smelly carpet. And he started praying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you more than anything else. Jesus, I need you. And I want you more than anything else. 
Jesus, I need you, and I want you more than anything else. And he kept repeating that. You could hear his voice crackling, and he started crying. And that moment, I keep going back to that moment, because if my pastor can humble himself in front of God and people and just follow Jesus like that, then I will trust him. And so... If you don't know these guys yet, you can either take my word for it or actually find out yourself. You know, we would love to have you. We would love to have you. So, um, and that is definitely not because I'm a pe people pleaser that I follow these guys. Uh, no, I'm a know-it-all. I think I'm always right. <laughs> Uh, there's this story, so I was, uh, I was on the phone with a phone center guy, like a call center guy. Have you ever been on the phone with a chatty call center guy? This guy was really chatty, so he was telling me about his favorite food, and he was giving me the contact of like this hotel owner in Turkey where he goes on holiday. Um, and, but the reason he stopped talking was I, I shared my date of birth to confirm this is really me, rah, rah. and he was like, oh, we're both Gemini. So like the star sign, like Zwilling in German. We're both Gemini, that's amazing. And he was like super pumped about that. And I said, yeah, well, actually, I don't believe in that. I believe that, you know, we make our own choices. We make our own decisions. I decide who I want to be and not some stars up in the sky. And he kept being super excited. He was like, yeah, you know, Gemini, that, just, that means we don't get angry easily. And if we do, we settle down again after 10 minutes. And I thought... Yeah, you clearly don't know me. <laughs> so it, it's, not, it's not about, you know, uh, I, I'm not a person who, uh, I, I have serious surrender issues, but I've learned that in the end, it's not about me being right, but about what we can achieve together. And I'd rather have us do not the, the best option, but together because we're going to achieve so much more than me being right all the time. So, let me ask you, who is your leader? So, I, I, I believe that we all need people in our lives who are speaking life, who are speaking truth, who are encouraging us, who are speaking into our potential, and occasionally give us a kick in the butt. Those people are leaders. Who's leading you? Who are you allowing to lead you? So the final thing the early church turned to, um, and that we can turn to as well, is our confession. So this is also called the rule of faith, or um, later developed into the apostolic creed. You know, this, I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and, and the, I can only know it, I only know it in German, or, uh, or the song that we used to sing. I believe in God, our Father. Yeah, so that. And that started developing from the New Testament onwards and kept uh, developing over time and growing. So it's the basics of our faith. The basics, you know, we believe in God, we believe in the resurrection, we believe that Jesus was raised, He will return, and, and all these things. Those are the core of our faith. And those are in line with what the New Testament said and in line with what the church leaders um, at the time said. So you see these three things, canon, church leadership, and confession actually worked really closely together. So if this guy walked in and said, um, like claimed the eternal virginity of Mary or something like that, they were like, uh, no, <laughs> that's not part of our confession. That's not part of our creed. That's not part of what we believe. The door's over there. You know, that 
in the end, that doesn't mean we don't question our faith. No, God is not offended by your questions. He's not going to be like, how dare you ask me that? How could you? I don't love you anymore. You know, he's not offended by our questions. The question is really, are you bringing your questions and troubles to God? Are you actually working through them? Or do you just let them simmer away until they eat you up? Do you actually want to get answers from God? Or do you just want to be right? So I'm a theologian and that just means I have much more questions than a lot of other people. <laughs> yes. Um, and you know, while studying theology, what you do is you question everything you believe. And um, I obviously, I struggled with that a lot. Um, but there's this one moment that I remember years back when we were at Ballhaus and I had a lecture in the evening uh, of this horrible professor, like Yeah, horrible like this, the things he said I was really upset after that because it's, yeah just really upset in my heart about what he was sharing and about the way he was speaking about faith and, and all that and um, you know really upset in my heart and I was hurrying to rehearsal again to rehearsal as I do um, and we had rehearsal at Ballhaus back in the time I entered the Ballhaus and there were people praying for each other there were people hugging there were people speaking life to each other there was such an atmosphere of God's presence in that room and I just I'm home God's presence is here and this is so much more real than what my professors say you know again that doesn't mean I don't question things that doesn't mean I have a lot of questions but that means that I know that I know that I know that I'm home and I know I've, I've had experiences with Jesus and that's how I know these things I've had encounters with him that I can't and won't deny I know that I know that I know that God is real that he loves me what is it that you know that you know that you know have you had that personal encounter with Christ you know in a moment we're going to give you that chance to respond to that if you want to encounter Christ As the team comes back up, I want to finish on a story. So there's uh, one woman in the Bible that I think is highly underestimated. I mean, women in general and in the Bible are highly underestimated. But this one in particular just has a bad reputation. Um, not because she's a bad person, but because everyone compares her to her sister. And that, that's not a, yeah, anyway. So the story is, uh, I'm talking about Martha. And in Luke... 10, 38 to 32, it talks about her and Jesus ends up rebuking her for not doing the thing that is expected of her, serving him. And he says, oh, Mary is actually sitting at my feet. He, he, she's listening to me. You should have been doing that kind of like that. Um, but there's another story about Martha. And I've always sympathized with Martha because she, you know, she, she gets things done. I love that. Um, obviously, there's something, you know, I need to keep working on that in my heart. But hey, so there's a story about Martha in John 11. And the story starts with, um, so Mary and Martha have a brother called Lazarus. He gets sick and the sisters send for Jesus to come and to heal him. Jesus says, oh, I'm going to not come now because it's better for everyone else if I actually come later. So Jesus comes as Lazarus is already dead. And um, he comes to the village and we pick it up in verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. 
Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. When Mary, uh, verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The story goes on. Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. But what's the difference in the reaction between the two sisters? And this is where Martha will finally be vindicated. Both sisters say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Mary stops there. Martha keeps going. What does she say? First she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. In verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In verse 27, and Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. She knows, she knows, she believes. What is it that you know, that you know, that you know? So let me ask you, which of these three points do you actually need to get serious about? Do you need to get serious about what the Bible has to say about you and your life? Or is it that you need to get serious about planting yourself under healthy leadership? Like I said, we would love to have you. Or is it that you need to get serious about your confession? Do you know Jesus? What, what are you speaking over your life? Do you believe that he has a purpose and a plan for your life? 